You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I want you to turn in your scriptures this morning to uh, Psalm 95. Now we're going to get to Judges 3, but today we're just going to read through Judges as we talk about it. So I want to hit, hit, hit Psalm 95 first. So if you want to if you want to turn there first and look at that psalm, and then we'll look at Judges 3. On your way to Psalm 95, here's a picture from last week, actually, too. Where's Kalen? There he is. Kalen drew this last week for us. We were talking about Othniel, that, that first judge. And so Kalen captured it with the people praying. They're before the God Baal there. Lord, help us, please. And God sent them Othniel who God through Othniel delivered the Israelites. And he's saying, charge. And it was this great kind of this picture of crying out and their Savior, their Deliverer comes. But then on the backside, Kalen also captured Othniel dies. They needed something more lasting, a forever Savior. So thanks for taking us there, Kalen. Hopefully by now you're at Psalm 95. Verses 1 through, I'll just read the whole psalm here before we get to our text for today. Let's listen to God's word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray once again. Lord, we come to you in your word today as we journey on to the book of Judges to the next deliverer. We have come to worship you for you are utterly and worthy alone of our eternal worship to sing it over and over for eternity how great a God you are and we're reminded of your great love to sinners like us. We thank You for that and we pray that by Your Spirit You would reveal in the text of today what You have to speak to our hearts. That we, our hearts would be penetrated by Your Word down to our soul, Lord, to hear from You. And so we pray this in Your name. Amen. Well, I invite you to then find Judges chapter 3, verse 12 in particular. 
before we get to our text in Judges 3, and let me just give this caveat. We've got, we've got quite a story, quite an account before us. This sermon may be a little longer than most. I'm just giving that out there, so I'm not trying to rush through it. It's just, it might be. I don't think it will be terribly long, but I'm giving that out there. But here we are, Judges 3, and I want you to consider, as we get to Judges 3, the voice of God. We just read about it in Psalm 95, this voice that God's Word, God's voice is all-powerful. Psalm 29 puts it this way, of the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Or verses 7-9, through nine, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in His temple all cry glory. God's voice and therefore God's Word is infinitely powerful. And now we head to Judges 3, verses 12-30. through 30. Today's passage is... It's, it's a feature film, if you will, of the powerful Word of God that graciously delivers His people. I say feature film because we're just in a fascinating portion of Scripture. If you've read ahead, you already know how fascinating this is of what we're going to read today, but we're in for a, a film-like account. It, this is the part of the program where they say, parents... If you have young children, you might want to occupy them for the next hour or so. It's kind of that kind of statement. But it's God's Word. And it's here for us to learn from and, and to hear it in all of its details. So we're going to grab some popcorn and we're going to dive into this film and then watch how God uses a left-handed deliverer to graciously deliver His people. So we're going to kind of just, we're going we're gonna to read through, make some comments as we go and look at this story of Ehud. Now, the first three verses here I'm going to read, and they're going to come as no surprise to us who have been in Judges already. Here's verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So again, we find that corruption, that sea corruption. Israel again did what was evil. But notice here what, uh, who sees what Israel is doing. Do you see it? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God sees the evil. It's done in His sight. Twice it's mentioned. Um, verse 12. Two times in the verse. Proverbs 5.21 reminds us, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. There is no evil. There's no sin that can be hidden from this God who sees Everything. There's no dark corner where we can hide from the all-seeing God. Israel could not as well. So not only is His Word all-powerful, His eyes are all-seeing. 
But then look at this, because we question here, who brings, now there's the, the corruption, then the consequence of Eglon, king of Moab. Who brings Eglon along? Do you see it in your text? The second part of verse 12, the Lord strengthened Eglon. Same God who sees now is strengthening the very enemy that will come against Israel. God Himself raising up this king to come against His people. Discipline and rebuke or correction are not random acts of an absent God, but a very present God who's righteously jealous for His people to come and worship Him. And God's going to use by His sovereign power a king from Moab and others. Those others are listed along with Moab. They're the Ammonites and the the Amalekites, cohorts with him. It's interesting, all three of these oppressors, if you look into it, all three of them are distantly related to Israel itself. Uh, Moab and the Ammonites, they're cousins through their mothers who were the daughters of Lot. So going back to Lot and Abraham, there's... They're distant relatives. Even the Amalekites themselves, they're descendants of Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau. So, yes, they're nations coming against the people of Israel, and they're, in a sense, they're way back kind of distant relatives at the same time. And so they come against Israel, and they defeat them. They take possession of this city of palms. It seems to mean Jericho. So here's Jericho. Last time we were through Joshua, last time we were in Jericho, we're in Joshua, and they come across and pass over the Jordan River. And the first, the first uh, victory is where it's at Jericho. And now here, Israel has corrupted, and the consequence so far that now the first victory is now the first place where the enemy sets up camp, and that's where they take possession. And so what does Israel do? What do any of us do when they've strayed so far and they're under this type of oppression serving Eglon 18 years? And the first part of 15, verse 15 tells us, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And here it is again. Once again, they cry out. And what happens? A God of steadfast love and mercy hears the cry of his people. And we're even thinking this is the second judge we've even looked at and think by this time it's kind of why again? But God is full of mercy. And he comes and he sends a deliverer. And we're going to spend the majority of our time then looking at this answer of God to their cry, this deliverer. And so look at the second part of verse 15. People of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And so here we find, here's our next judge, Ehud the Benjaminite. I'm not sure, I don't even know, if you, if you know um, what the name Benjamin means, so I have to look these things up as well. But this is interesting. It's, it's the name that, that Jacob gave to the son of Rachel. She wanted him named Ben-Onai, 
which is an interesting account. Um, I don't have it written down, the reference, more in Genesis there, but she wanted this child named Benoni, son of my sorrow, or, or could mean son of my strength. Jacob names him Benjamin, son of the right hand. I find this fascinating. Because one thing, this Benjamite, this Ehud, he's not right-handed. I don't know that it means everybody's got to be right-handed in the tribe, but it's just it's a play on, I think, this word, and we're going to see hand throughout this passage. Here's a tribe, son of my right hand, and the deliverer, it's a left-handed guy named Ehud. Okay. Well, later on we're going to read about this tribe in Judges uh, and we'll see. Some think this is chronologically what happens later with the Benjamites is here. We'll get into that later. Uh, but here, later on in the book, we find 700 Benjamites that are also left-handed. So son of my right hand becomes a left-handed uh, tribe. Even today, though, left-handedness is a rarity. If you look it up on Google, how many people in the world are right-handed, you're going to find it first hit is 90%. 90% of the population is right-handed. Some of you lefties out there, I, don't, I won't take a poll of who is left-handed. I know some are. You're going to commiserate together about the right-handed world you live in. So could Ehud. Ehud. But there's a thread through, through this film called Judges 3. Again, of this of this left-handed man who has a powerful hand of God with him. Takes what appears to be the weakness, the, the, the oddball, if it were, which they're not, right? It's not odd, but, but that weakness God uses by His sovereign plan to deliver His people. And so we find this left-handed deliverer being sent to Israel and sent by Israel to give tribute to Eglon, this king of Moab. Now the word tribute here, some sort of payout. payout. You know, Eglon, they rule the area. And so what do you do when a ruler rules the area? In this time, you pay them. You send tribute. Could have been one place that precious metals, um, that sort of thing. Could be labor, serve them. Or I think the tribute maybe just here is bringing the produce of the land. You bring what you made and you give a portion to that one ruling over the land. So they're bringing a tribute to Eglon. So Ehud's, he's got a task. And however God did it, the plot against Eglon is formed in Ehud's mind. Ehud's got a task. Go take the tribute. And then verse 16 gives us just this little side note before he goes to give it. Look at verse 16 now. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, <clears throat> a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. The sword of Ehud had a mission to perform. It had a message to deliver. We're going to see that in just a little bit. But the sword is bound on his right thigh. Now, I've got a sword with me. You probably didn't think I had. I don't normally keep a sword up here, but today I do. Um, this is a sword I got when I was in Africa in high school. I spent a summer there, and I asked my friend Sally Fu, can you help me find a place to get a sword? Sally Fu helped me find a place, and I got a, I got a sword, more of a dagger. 
He said, yeah, the sides, they're not sharp at all. It's just for going in. Like, thank you. That's good to know. Uh, we were going to the movies one night. He said, can I carry your thing? And I said, no, I'll, we'll leave it. You know, I don't want to be part of some death or something while I'm in Africa. Anyway, perhaps something like this. I don't know if this is a cubit. Maybe a cubit's a little longer. Some sort of dagger that Ehud makes. And yet it says he keeps it where? Normally, in a 90% right-handed world, where's that going to be? It's going to be right here. So your powerful hand, you're going to come up and you're going to grab it and you're going to do your thing. So where are the guards going to be looking for his weapon? They're going to be looking right here. But for Ehud... His left-handedness, God sovereignly, and it's right here. And nobody suspects it's coming out over here. That's a little taste of what's to come. But that's a little idea. And so Ehud fashions this message, if you will. Okay. Well, look at verse 17 because they've got the tribute loaded He's got the sword on, and Ehud and company set off to see King Eglon. Verse 17 picks it up, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now, fascinatingly details, Eglon was a very fat man. It's just there. I'm not putting this in. I'm not reading from a paraphrase. Here's what it is. And that gives us just a little clue of what's to come in this account. And we get this little detail. Let's read on verses 18 through 19 then. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, I think the king here, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So after presenting the the tribute, the payment, whatever it was, Ehud travels back with the crew up to the idols of Gilgal, they're called. Now, I don't know what these are. I don't know if they're idols of Israel. The wording here could be like they're boundary stones. I think the the base of the Hebrew word is is like hewn, like H-E-W-N, a hewn stone, which could mean, you know, carved images, but it also could be just a a boundary line, like they got to the boundary or something of Moab, maybe. I, I lean towards, perhaps, I'm thinking if Moab is in charge, this is one of their idolatry places, but I have no idea. But that's where they are. The text doesn't give us all the details, but it's interesting because here Ehud turns around at the idols. Now, it's just, inter- just speculation, but this what he does right there, when they get to the idols and he turns around, isn't that what's... Israel's supposed to do, the people of God, to the idols. They're supposed to repent. They're supposed to turn around. I believe the root of the word even used is the same for that idea of turning around in repentance. Just speculation, but we see here maybe even something Israel should have been doing. Well, Ehud returns. Guys, you keep going. Head back to the land. And he heads back towards the king towards Eglon. And so returning, he comes before the king and he says to the king, I've got a secret message for you. And for whatever reason, King Eglon says silence, which is another way of saying clear the room. Probably if you're a secret service for King Eglon, 
Maybe it should be going through your mind. This is not a good idea, but that just, that's not how this, the account goes. And so everybody leaves. Now look at verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. The idea of rising up to kind of receive this message. I believe in this verse 20, we are at the central scene and event of this passage. What we just read. The king's in his cool roof chamber. Maybe something like an additional room, like a, like a guest room. Some even pictures have it like a side room kind of built down to the, the upper level of the house. Maybe a place that was cooler than most. Seems like it could have had maybe even a separate staircase down the, the backside. Something like that to give you an idea of where this is. But I want to focus on what Ehud says. He says, I have a message from God for you. What does he have, hint, hint, for Eglon? We go, he's got a sword. What, what do you mean a message? And Eglon says, I've got literally a word for you, a message for you from God. And it's in actually his right thigh. It's a two-edged sword. And so Ehud, as God's deliverer, here's God's word or message, and it's going to be one of deliverance through Ehud. And when God speaks with his word, he penetrates deeply. Now look at the story. Look at the account of verse 21 then through 22. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. There's a picture. I didn't make that up. It's right here. Here it is in all of its detail. And the imagery is intense. It, if you even cause your, I mean, if you want to imagine this scene, it's pretty intense. There's fat closing over the blade, the dung coming out. I won't go more detail. There's just some, you can go either way on the word. The word used here for, for what the ESV is calling dung, it could, it's just used one time right here. It could mean dung coming out. It, it could mean that the, the, the blade went, kept going out the, the back side. Whatever it means, that's bad, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's awful, and it went all the way through. And that's what's going on. Either way, pretty gruesome portrait, which leads some, some commentators, even commentators that, that I look on, they don't look favorably on Ehud here. Like, he shouldn't have been doing this, or this was wrong. But alas, Matthew Henry, he writes this, and so I add it. He says about Ehud, He put to death Eglon, the king of Moab. I say put him to death, not murdered or assassinated him, but as a judge or minister of divine justice, executed the judgments of God upon him 
as an implacable enemy to God and Israel. This was an enemy, and Ehud the judge delivers the people with this death blow. Not murdering, not killing him, but I think God's agent dealing that judgment upon Eglon. Now, the escape is just as fascinating. So look on, look at verses 23, and I'll read quite a portion down to 26. The fat's closed over, this guy's dead. But verse 23, Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. Somewhere in the architecture of this building, I don't know how, but Ehud found another way out, maybe down the set of stairs, maybe locking the doors from one side or the other. I don't know how it all looked, but he got them locked and he got out of there. And Why the servants were waiting so long, especially with Ehud alone with their king, I, I just don't know, other than God's right hand is working as the true deliverer for his people. There is something that makes sense of why these guys, why these servants thought he was, as the ESV puts it, relieving himself in the closet. Now, one more thought, and then parents, it'll get kind of better from here. Okay? Here's what one commentator, here's what one resource says. Again, I'm not making it up, he just says this. Here's why these guys might have delayed going in. At the point when Ehud stabbed Eglon, the murdered man's anal sphincter exploded, creating a smell similar to that associated with the bowel movement. Eglon's guards hesitated to interrupt the king. Why? We think he's going. Well, let's give him the space. And I know we're, we're like, well, this is church and the sermon it's the it's in here and i think god sovereignly even uses smells while these people are like the guards hey let's take it you know let's not go in what happens his deliverer is running free to go lead his people back to defeat moab god's working through all these fascinatingly little details even through smells and so ehud escapes all right, we're leaving that scene now. Out past the idols, out to Sarah, wherever that was, maybe hill country of Ephraim as we're going to read. And so the text continues. Look at verse 27 then. Ehud escapes. And we might just put in there, by the hand of God. Verse 27, when he arrives, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was there leader it's the sound of the trumpet that gathers for battle even christ matthew 24 says this he's going to send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they're going to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other and so god's deliverer leads god's people 
into battle. And verse 28 gives us Ehud's message to these people. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And over and over we see that hand at work in this passage. The Lord here has used a left-handed deliverer to give Israel's enemies into their hand. And what's the call? The call is follow. In this case, follow Ehud, the deliverer whom God has raised up through which God's almighty hand has and is saving His people. The Lord gives the victory. The call here is to follow. That's kind of the end of the film. And then you know how at the end of the movie they'll kind of give the post, the, the what happened afterwards and, and kind of how it plays out. That's what verse, uh, verses 29 and 30 are. Look at those then as this, as this scene kind of closes out. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong Able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Not one man escaped. 10,000 men struck down. How are these men described? Strong, able-bodied men. God is the sovereign Lord over both the enemies of Israel, strengthening Eglon to come against His people. And yet in the end, God's grace hears the cry of His own. And God gives the victory to a crew led by a left-handed man. If God be your powerful help and aid, there is no man strong enough to withstand your God. So the land, verse 30, it was subdued and there is rest some 80 years. And if we didn't have Judges chapter 4, verse 1, we could just assume by now that was 80 years of rest and then falling away again. And that's exactly what chapter 4, verse 1, that we'll look at uh, in a while, what it says. Okay, so... We've got lefties and swords and secret plots and gruesome death. And I'm wondering what pictures you're drawing today, kids, right? Mom and dad are too. And there's escape and there's victory. There's a lot here. But I want to come back just to one scene in this passage, again, that I pointed out. That scene um, in verse 20 where Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. Here's a man wielding a double-edged sword has a word from God. I want to take that and take us to the New Testament. I want you to head to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Maybe some of you are already making this connection and thinking, where have we heard of double-edged swords before? I want you to head to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at verse 12. I want to give a little context, a little thought here. The context in Hebrews 3, 4 seems to be, there seems to be a call 
to confident belief, obedience, belief slash obedience, interchangeable confidence in God's very word. There's a danger in the heart. Chapter 3, verse 12 says there's a danger of an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But as we work our way towards verse 12 of chapter 4, there's a reference, and this is why we read Psalm 95 to begin with, there's a reference to the psalm throughout. This reference of today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Israel had rebelled against the Lord. We we see it in our text, but also prior to that in the wilderness. A whole generation could not enter the promised land because of disobedient unbelief. Same thing, disobedience, unbelief in their Lord. But the rest, the rest that Joshua offered into the promised land, that new generation, that was not the final rest. For it says the rest of God remains for those who would believe. And so the, the, the writer of Hebrews is calling these readers. He's saying, today, believe. Today, hold firm your confidence. Today, live by obedient faith. Trusting in God's salvation, His promised rest. And so we get to Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. Let me read it to you. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now, One article I found makes a case for the connection between our Ehud of Judges 3 and this verse in Hebrews uh, 4. The guy's name is Chad Ashby. I don't know much about him, but he wrote this article, and I'm, I'm using a bit of it. And he writes this, quote, As he preaches, that is the writer of Hebrews, as he preaches, the author moves from Moses to Joshua, and as his mind moves chronologically through Judges, he hits on a pertinent resemblance. Ehud's sword and God's word. End quote. Now, you look it up in the, in the way it's written, they both contain similar type language. The word, you know, that Ehud had, here's a word of God to you, and here we've got the word of God is living and active. There is, I, I think, connection. We need to be careful with connections and, you know, finding meaning behind every little thing, and this means this, and, and want to be careful, and there's caution there. But I think there's at least a strong case for a connection between Ehud and then what we're reading here in Hebrews chapter 4. That the author of Hebrews perhaps had Ehud in mind in writing this. And so let me make this connection as we think of Judges 3 where Ehud has an actual sword but calls it a word from God to you. We've got Psalm 95. Today, if you hear His voice, and then you've got Hebrews 4. And here's what I'm connecting. That God's Word, in all of it, is synonymous with God's voice. 
which is synonymous, the same thing. So God's word is God's voice, is God's power. All are connected. It's not just here's God's word and then his power. It's all connected in the Godhead. But these things are connected. I think his word, his voice, his power. Think of Jesus, the word of God come in the flesh, who was powerful. Milt referenced uh, John 4, the lady at the, the woman at the well in Samaria, to which she proclaims when, when Jesus, had, he kind of knew about her, her life, and he says this, or she says this to the town. She proclaims, He told me, right? He spoke to me words, right? He told me all that I ever did. And in the same chapter, even if you just keep reading on, Jesus says to the official, remember, the, his son was at the point of death. Jesus says to him, just the official's there, my son, he's near death. He says, Go. Your son will live. And we find later that at that hour, that son was healed by Jesus. He says it. Go and he'll live. There's power in that word of Christ, of God. And Jesus, as the word of God, he demonstrates his power to cut to the heart of the woman, to heal the boy. And now his word are scriptures synonymous god's word what god says god says in his word it's god speaking and we have them written by the spirit the very words of god with that same power a power to both penetrate the heart and a power to deliver in hebrews 4 god's word penetrates the heart Peter O'Brien says this, commenting on verse 13, Hebrews 4. He says, here in Hebrews, there is a close connection between God and His Word. To be exposed to the Word of Scripture is to be examined fully by God Himself and therefore to be answerable to Him. The author thus moves smoothly from the searching power of God's Word in verse 12 to our, account- to our accountability before Him as judge in verse 13. God's Word is powerful in our lives, and when it comes in, you're struck with first, who am I? I am naked and exposed to what? The eyes of Him. He sees it, and He sees the evil. Even though you might hide it from others, He sees past that, and God's Word penetrates to show us His law shows us how sinful we are and how in need we are and how we've sang about His holiness and how unholy we are. So it penetrates the heart, but it penetrates and it reveals. Just look at the very next verse in Hebrews. It reveals Jesus. I'll just read verse 14. Since then, so there's this, the word penetrates, it it pierces And then verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Not only does it penetrate, but it points. God's Word reveals our sin and coming judgment, and it reveals the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. 
May we be a people that hear His powerful Word, that, that what we have here, we read the Word. We study it. We believe it, we, which means we obey it. We use it. We use it in counseling. We use it in parenting. We use it for life. It's our Word. It's His Word. And whether you are right-handed or left-handed, we want to embrace the sword of the Lord that delivers our Lord God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us both a penetrating dose of true reality in Your Word when it cuts through to our own hearts to reveal our sin and our waywardness and our utter rebellion. And yet, by Your grace, this same powerful Word that penetrates reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. By Your Spirit, the apostles were reminded of all that You had told them and they wrote it down that we have God's Word before us to guide us to know salvation. Lord, where we have let Your sword gather dust and rust. Forgive us, Lord, and may we ever lean on Your Word. And then may Your Word guide us to the Word. Lord, I pray we don't worship just the book we have in our lap. We worship the One who the book is about. You, Lord Jesus Christ, the true Deliverer that saves eternally. So draw us, Lord, as we read to understand what we're reading and then be drawn to, to more and more glory of you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would guide these dear folks gathered today as they study your word this week. Grant them to see Christ that much more. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.